Good morning, everyone. Well, at 12 o'clock, starting to get more people. That's good. Congratulations. Hope you got up okay this morning. And he's meddling with your iPhones. It's a bold move. Bold move to take on the iPhone during the offertory. <clears throat> Which I don't have one. So, anyways, if anybody wants to buy me one. Um, did that come out? I didn't mean to say that out loud. Just kidding. I have a duct tape cell phone, remember, from last week? So I'm happy about that. Hey, we're glad you're with us today. We are uh, beginning a journey, uh, a new series called Journey to the Cross. And last Wednesday, we started our Lent season. Uh, Ash Wednesday, where we kind of came together, we focused on the cross and really prepared our hearts to say, okay, how could we enter this story? And historically, throughout the centuries, the church has fasted from something for the 40 days prior to Good Friday and Easter. So they call that Lent. I don't know why they call it Lent. Um, but in doing so, they take off Sundays, and on Sundays it's resurrection, and so you break the fast and you celebrate. Sometimes people, you pay more attention to Scripture, you uh, add service, whatever it is. So some people try to break a bad habit. Other people give up a meal, and, and there's all kinds of ways of going about it, and so nobody really wants to be legalistic about it. The challenge is that most of us don't do it, and so Easter comes and goes, sort of like, you know, just another day of the year, just another simple calendar day. Really, the invitation of Lent is to journey with Christ to the cross, to let this season form us as we anticipate as we're shaped, as we are encountering the living Christ. And so you're all encouraged to join us. Those of you who haven't, uh, it's, it's never too late to jump on and, and focus more on the Lord. But what we're going to talk about today is how that journey to the cross really begins in the wilderness. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and they'll get you one. When you think about fasting, fasting does a couple things. It puts us really in this grand narrative of Scripture. We find ourselves entering the story in a way that we normally don't. Because what we find is that when we give something up, uh, it doesn't take long before your body starts to cry out and you recognize that you really are dust. That you really are frail and weak and that the story of that you are created is actually very, very true. If you give up uh, food, you know, by, by one day, two days, three days, it gets really tough. If you're trying to break the habit of smoking, you give up cigarettes. By three days, everybody knows, like, oh, you're fasting and you're angry. Um, <laughs> but in your jaw, you're chewing gum so fast, your jaw is like, yeah the little nick fits, you know, and, and so our body is like, oh, and in that place of the desert, it really is a time of breaking. It's a humble time because it's humble because we realize, my gosh, there's so much that I'm depending on to keep me going, but it's an accurate humility. Okay. There's, there's no sense that we should fool ourselves into thinking you aren't frail. You aren't weak. You don't need anybody. Because that would be a lie. And so as we enter into this journey of the cross, understanding that it begins in the wilderness, so much of the time we, we start asking questions. How do I do this? 
Right? Give me the how-to books. Teach me how to go through this 40-day journey and fast. What are the keys? And sadly enough, there's tons of books written about fasting, which seems like it shouldn't really be that big of a book, right? Stop eating, chapter 1. Don't do it, you know? And then you get to chapter 2. See chapter 1, and there's an appendix, and the appendix says, yeah, keep doing that over and over. And yet there's so much that's sort of there to teach us. And, And the bottom line is that it's not an issue of how to do it or how or what we need. It's ultimately an issue of who we need. When we find ourselves in that place of frailty, of brokenness, of humbling, of testing, who do we need in the in the wilderness? And the answer is Christ. And so as we go into Matthew 4, we're actually following Jesus into his his journey. And that's where we find ourselves. So what I want us to do is look at this passage and then and then talk about kind of four ways that this story shapes us in the wilderness, our own wilderness. First, I want to create the context for you, okay? Jesus has just been baptized by the Father. The heavens part open. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. Voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, whom I well please. It's an identity-creating, mission-initiating moment where Jesus now says, I am the Son of God, I'm the beloved Son, and I'm going on this mission, which is to bring about the salvation of the world, to reconcile all things back to the Father. And immediately he's put in, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which sort of freaks us out a little bit. Like, okay, God let him go do this. The wilderness is a context of barrenness, okay? It's dry, it's arid. If you've ever been out camping where it's just so quiet at night, you could hear forever, you get away from the city and it's dark, Okay, you know those moments of silence. Now take everybody that's with you and make them go away. And that's a great hour and a half. But then it gets sort of like, it starts to cave in on itself. It's like, okay, I heard the squirrels. Uh, and then it's sort of, what was that? Did you hear that? Well, there's no one to talk to. Okay, I heard something. And, and we find our place, it's a, a place of, of silence, of barrenness. But it's also a place of vulnerability when we're out there. And so Jesus goes into this wilderness place, and then it says He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. I have a a couple friends who do this almost every Lent. They don't eat for 40 days. And you watch them go through this process where the first nine days they're just they're dying. And they don't go around announcing it, which I mean most of us would. Well, I haven't eaten 32 days, but I'm good. How are you, Bill? Um, other than that. So, but after that kind of nine-day period, then everything just starts to shut down, right? And, and then all these toxins start getting released from their body. So that not only they're getting emaciated, their eyes are a little more sunk in, but they smell bad. And their wives are like, go into the wilderness for real. Um, do that thing. And I've been with them in those last few days, and there's no fight in them at all. Which is a great time to take on major issues that you disagree with on that. Because you're just like, dude, and they're like, uh, bam, you slam. And so I play kind of a satanic role in those relationships. 
in the last 40 days. Um, and that's Jesus. That's where he's at. He's emaciated. He's in a barren place. He is 100% human, and therefore he's released toxins. He is completely sunken in in terms of his eyes. He's super tired. He's got no fight in him at this point. And that's when Satan enters the story. Now, Satan is in the story tempting Jesus with legitimate temptation. And so we got to kind of create a context. How can God lead Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil? And the temptations that he offers seems to be that he has some authority. And so Scripture teaches us that Satan is the god of this age and the ruler of the world. That he ripped off authority to rule from Adam, who was supposed to have dominion over creation. He rips that off from Adam, and now he rules and perverts and twists. He has a limited reign, and he has limited power, but he has actual reign and actual power. And so the temptations that he tempts Christ with are legitimate. The offers he makes are legitimate, because for a limited time that God has kind of deemed, he has scope and he has authority on earth, even though it's authority under the sovereign authority of God. So this temptation is legitimate. Now some of you are struggling already. You're just going, okay, we got a devil and a dove and a baptism and a voice from heaven. I can't, okay? And, and granted, if we're purely looking at it from some sort of uh, rational, modernistic enlightenment thought, you're going to have issues that you struggle with. But if from our faith journey, this is our story. And so God gives the story of His humanity, and we believe as, as a community of faith that God is a great communicator. So He communicates through creation, and He communicates through His Word, and ultimately He communicated through Christ. And the story is that man has rebelled against God after succumbing to the temptation of Satan. And Satan has a limited amount of authority but will be ultimately conquered by Christ through the cross and the resurrection. And in the age to come, he will be destroyed forever. That's our story. And you may go, well, I don't know if I buy that story. But listen, even if you subscribe, let's say it's atheistic evolution, you have a story too that you subscribe to. And you can take it all the way back to mindless matter in a big ball somewhere in beyond the universe because the universe wasn't there. That's still a faith story. And so it, when we talk about oranges, or, origins and meanings and purpose, we all are, are subscribing to someone. And the biblical story says there's a real Satan alive in the world today. And, and this is a point at which Jesus is being tempted by him. So in Matthew chapter 4, that's the context that we pick the story up in. Follow along with me. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple. He said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. 
and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Satan knows the Scriptures. He sucks at interpreting them. So he's, he's saying, let me give you, I got some verses for you. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, I want us to look at four ways in which this story shapes our journey. The first is that the primary reason this story is in there is that it, it is showing that it is a messianic story. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic dream that the Old Testament talked about. And where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And so all the passages that he's quoting are coming from the early chapters of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6 and 8. And as Israel went into the wilderness, as she was to be the people of God who were a blessing to the nations, she repeatedly failed. She repeatedly sinned against God. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 8, you get a picture of what the wilderness is supposed to produce in us and what it produced in Israel. Deuteronomy 8, chapter, or verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and, and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. So the point of the wilderness is that it's supposed to end in the promised land. It's supposed to end with resurrection. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger, and He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is quoting this context. And as Israel goes into the wilderness after being rescued from 400 years of slavery, their first complaint is the food sucks here. And they wish they could go back into slavery because they missed the meat and vegetables. And in that place of the wilderness where you fail and I fail, but we all are invited to go into, the point is it humbles us and it tests our hearts. In that excruciating pain, your heart starts to be purified. And it's almost a, a melting process where all the stuff comes to the top. And so when Israel is in that humbled state, she sins against God and says, I don't care about being sustained by your word. I care about being sustained by meat and bread. And I wish we were back in slavery and fails the test. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's invited to, to fix the greatest pain that he's got going, turn these, these rocks into bread. And he says, no, that's not what sustains me. What sustains me is the Word of God. This intimate relationship as He, com he speaks 
to me. He communicates to me. That's what ultimately is going to define my life and sustain my life. Okay. So the first test is there and shows that Jesus is the Messiah. The second one is do not te- put your Lord, put the Lord to the test. And Israel was always testing God. At the core of any test of God is really the question, do you care about me? Uh, you know, like I followed you, but I don't know that you're really going to show up. And so Israel always demanded a sign. If God does this, if God does this, tell him this. So, and, and there's this bartering thing going on. Satan says, look, if you're the son of God. So the first question is the core of his identity. If you really think God loves you, that you're a son to him, then throw yourself down and obviously a father would catch his son, wouldn't he? Test, test it. Test and see if God's word is true. Test and see if his care for you is real. Test and see if his love is real. And just as Israel did this time after time, you and I do this time after time. I get letters all the time where people coming up to me saying, hey, I told God I'd be a missionary and then I went and did this and I gave up this and this, but here's what happened to me. My relationships are lame. My job's bad. And now I'm looking at this and I'm like, look, God, I did my thing, but you ain't showing up. So you want to test them. Sometimes in the wilderness, God steps back. And in our immediate emotions and circumstance, we don't know where He's at. And those are the times where what's really in our heart will show up. Do we trust that He cares for us? He said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Do we believe that? Do we believe that He loves us enough to die for us? in the midst of that moment? Or do you want to test Him? So when Jesus is in that most needy place, and Satan comes and says, man, I don't know if God really loves you. Look, it's barren. It's broken. Your body's frail. You should test. Test His love. Jesus says, don't put the Lord to the test. Right? It is written. And then the last one ultimately is a test of worship. Jesus is tested. Will you serve another God? Will you worship another God? And as you follow Israel's story, this is what happens all the time. They continually give their heart away to other gods. And so Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and they're all dancing around this golden calf. And he asks Aaron, whom he put in charge, he's like, what happened? Uh, I don't know. We threw a bunch of jewelry in. This cow walked out. and I kind of messed up and said, this is your God that saved you from Egypt. But I don't know. And, and, and this takes place all through the Old Testament. And so God says, you're my covenant people. Don't worship other gods. They start to worship other gods. He says, i got to bring prophets in now to tell you you're worshiping other gods. Sometimes I have to bring punishment in to show you you're worshiping other gods. And this all leads to death. And it's a repeated problem for you and me too. Because in this wilderness, we live in a culture that says we can take care of every problem, every need you have. We can solve everything with, with, we can gratify those needs now. And so some of you say, well, I think, uh, 
I think my life would be satisfied if I had a better sex life, so you commit adultery. Some of you say, well, my life would be satisfied if I had more money, so you become a workaholic. Some of you think your life will be satisfied if you don't have any responsibilities, so you become lazy. We all are looking for something to satisfy us, and we ultimately start to worship those things, and we commit idolatry. And Jesus, in that moment, is tempted to go, here's the greatest temptation. Forget about having to go to the cross. Forget about waiting for eternity. You can be the king of the the kingdoms now. You can have it now. We can get to the end of this story like that. All you have to do is commit idolatry. All you have to do is worship me. And at that point, heaven is at stake. Satan is trying to usurp more than just an earthly kingdom. He's trying to usurp an eternal kingdom. And Jesus' answer is, it is written, shall worship God alone and serve Him only. And so He comes out all three of these temptations and He is perfectly qualified to be Israel's Messiah and ultimately the fulfillment of all history, Old Testament history. The second thing that it shows us, though, is what Jesus' spirituality looks like in a world that's overran by the devil. And Jesus' spirituality is cross-shaped spirituality. If we just stand back from the story and look at it from the eyes of our culture, we recognize that if Jesus would have succumbed to temptation, He would have been a much more effective Messiah. He would have done His job better. And Satan never shows up and questions Jesus' mission. He never says like, oh, you don't want to save the world. You don't want to... Right? He, all he talks about is how. There's a better way to do this. So, the first thing is, what if you turn rock to bread? Jesus could have done a lot of good by, by turning stones to bread. He could have ultimately fulfilled his own needs and then solved world hunger. Which none of us would say that's a bad thing. He would have had a great commodity on his hands. Right? There's a famine somewhere in the world, but there's a lot of rocks there. Oh good, get Jesus there. He can fix the famine as long as there's rocks. When there's really no shortage of rocks. And so he doesn't succumb to saying, I can be somehow effective. I can somehow um, perform. His spirituality is rooted in something altogether different. It's, it's not to fix the problems of the world at a temporary level. Because as soon as He changes a, a rock into bread and the person eats the bread, in four or five hours they're going to need another piece of bread. The second temptation is this idea that he would have been a much more effective Messiah had he performed some kind of crazy stunts. It's, it, it blows my mind sometimes to think that Jesus, that God, when He decided, when will I come into the world? And He is standing outside of history so He could show up at any point in history. And He shows up in a three-mile-an-hour world where He will spend His whole life living really within a hundred-mile radius. 
And if you or I were kind of playing that game, we'd probably show up pretty much now. We can satellite feed Jesus' Sermon on the Mount into everywhere in the world. We can get it on prime time on every network. Right? There's an effectiveness to, to the way I think, and it's strategic, and He just doesn't do it that way. He's going to go to a three-mile-an-hour world and say, no, I'm going to get it done this way, and I'm, and I'm going to tell these 12 guys about it, and they'll tell a bunch of people, and we'll just keep doing that for 2,000 years. What? That's not effective. We can, get, we can make this more effective. But he refuses to kind of jump through your hoops and do this dog and pony show. He won't let his deity be turned into propaganda and marketing. He just won't, he just won't let that happen. When you go through the Scriptures, you see him performing miracles all the time. What's surprising is he doesn't perform more of them. He should be fixing everybody, right? That's the greatest miracle. He should just go around and say, world fixed, boom, and we're done. Like, why don't we have that? And he won't bypass that. Even at the times where he, every time you see him doing a miracle, the, one of the key kind of emotions that shows up in a lot of those stories is he is filled with compassion. He's overwhelmed with compassion. The personal, the relational, is always part of the process for Christ. So even when he feeds the 5,000 and the disciples have to carry around these 12 baskets, right? and now there's this huge crowd and it's like, oh, we finally got the church off the ground, Jesus. He turns around and goes, eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't do that, you have no part of me. And everybody's like, what? What did he say? And the one dude's like, i got to see a guy about a thing, but uh, are you going to... To make a dessert thing happen later? Because we might be back for that. Um, he keeps, he keeps assuring that those who are interested in following him are not following him because he can perform a bunch of cool feats. That his deity would somehow be, uh, put under this scheme of propaganda and marketing. And the challenge to us today is that Jesus' spirituality is very different than a lot of Western Christianity. Where we, can have, we have one minute this and the five minute that. And, and we find ourselves in these positions where the next book that comes out promises that you can be victorious in all of your sin and you can do it instantly. And, and that is the way of the devil. I can get your life on track, straightened out, you can be perfect, and you don't need God to do it. It's effective, right? It's efficient. You just don't get to know God. You don't get to be a son and a daughter. You don't get your heart formed. You don't get to be healed. You don't get journey and process and relationship. You don't get intimacy. It's not personal. All the things that God cares about. You just get end product. And many of you have bought enough of those books to know that's a joke. Because there's really not good instant anything, is there? Like if somebody's like, hey, I got a brand new jar of instant coffee. Like you don't get excited about that, do you? Do you want another cup? It will only take me an instant. Mm -mm. No, I don't. I didn't want the first cup, actually. I don't want any instant anything. 
But if I say, well, I can in an instant make you perfect. I can sanctify you. I can get it all done right now. All you have to do is, is let go of God. So the Jesus way is cross-shaped. It's journey-oriented. It's slower in a sense. And the last one is that He would have given in to the temptation. He would have been a very just ruler of all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus ruling over the entire world, there'd be no more war, no more oppression, no genocide. He would have made the empires of the world work really well. We look at that and go, well, how could He not do that? That's what the world needs. The world needs a, a, a godlike ruler who can rule justly. The only thing He would have to do is worship the devil to do it. But the world will be a better place, right? And he gets to bypass the cross. And in all of these pictures, we come to understand that Jesus' spirituality calls us to rethink what we think are the biggest problems of our, in our lives and in the world. And the goal isn't that you and I would be fixed. The goal is that God would be worshipped alone. And that is going to happen through a blood-stained cross that Christ will bear on our behalf so that we can know this God and be forgiven. The greatest problem with the world isn't world hunger and the environment and those issues that we care about, that we're actively involved in, that we should be involved in. But the point isn't to fix them. The point is to let the world know that there's a God that is worthy of their worship. So he trades in an, an imperial crown that the world would have given him, Satan could have gave him immediately for a crown of thorns that ultimately brings him an eternal glory. And so we're invited into this story to see it as a story that tells us and calls us to a different type of spirituality. A Jesus spirituality that looks very different in a world that's overran by the devil. The third thing is that it's a formation story. It's really a story that teaches us what, what it looks like when Satan tempts us and what God, how God shapes us in the wilderness. Satan's temptations are always to bypass God to get immediate gratification. That right now you can fix that pain, heal that hurt, get there instantly. And the way that God shapes us throughout this, this uh, wilderness temptation, is that we find ourselves recognizing that it's not okay to be self-sufficient. That ultimately we're not. And that life is ultimately sustained by God's Word. Now, some of us look at that and go, well, I don't really like the Bible. They're, you know, they're just, I don't get into it. The problem is that ultimately it's a disbelief is God is a great communicator. He's communicated us this great story, this narrative that we personally are shaped by and changed by. And if we don't give ourselves to studying, to meditating, to loving the Scriptures, then we find ourselves in the wilderness and we're dead. Like we got nothing to come back with. And not only that, but 
people can pervert the Scripture like Satan does, and we won't know it. We'll just be like, oh, that sounds right. In the midst of temptation, when you have to refute the fact that, does God care for me? Should I meet my own needs? Should I worship other gods? And there's nothing I have to come back to. With I thought I saw a bumper sticker one time. And, uh, you know, like, oh, there was a sermon I heard. I can't. And you got nothing there. The way that we are to enter into this wilderness to be tempted by Satan and withstand temptation is that we are sustained by the Word. And in that barren place, the Word starts to be thirst quenching and appetite satisfying and life shaping. It's also uh, a place where we learn that God can be trusted. That we don't have to test Him. We can stand back in, in a sense and realize that though I may be not feeling all the emotions that I want to feel or being satisfied the way I, I think I should, that when I trust in His care and don't test Him, He really does show up. He really does show up. And I have to stand in a barren place without evidence sometimes. And by faith, say, God, I believe that You're here and that You love me and that You're with me. And your heart changes on that journey. And then the last one ultimately is a worship piece. That the way God allows us to kind of defeat the temptations that come in our lives are when we start to allow our hearts to be satisfied with God and not other things. It's that place of worship where we recognize that this really is satisfying. And for some of you, you've spent your whole life in church and just gone, man, people talk about God being satisfying, but I don't see it or buy it. But it's probably because you're satisfying yourself with all kinds of other things. But let yourself fast. Let yourself be in that barren place and recognize, man, God is more satisfying than all those other things that are there. And this journey is about the intimacy. It's about the relationship and it's about the process. And so when God forms us in this place, when we, when we see it as a process of formation, that cross that we bear isn't our enemy, but it's our friend. It's the way that we are ultimately shaped into the image of Christ. It's a formation story. And it's personal to you because you have specific sins that God wants to work on. Specific doubts. Specific hurts. And you can't get there just by some kind of generic five-minute fix-it thing. He's interested in the journey with you. And the last one is ultimately this is a salvation story. Because it shows us that Jesus is qualified to be our Savior. To die for our sins. If Jesus would have sinned, if He would have succumbed to any of those temptations, even in His heart, thought Him, you and I would be hopeless. He would have to die for Himself 
Not for us. He wouldn't have been able to die for us. And so the first thing in this salvation story is he's this faithful son. He's not Israel. He's not Adam. He's not us. He's not like us. He's perfect. He's faithful to God. You need that Jesus in your life. You need Him to be the faithful Son of God. And He's also a sinless sacrifice. He's a sinless Savior. He was tempted in all ways and yet is without sin. That's what Hebrews tells us. And in that, being tempted and yet without sin, it means He can have mercy on you, He has compassion on you, and yet He died to also forgive you. You need Him to be sinless because God required an unblemished sacrifice. And so this perfect human that was fully God and fully man took your cross and He was qualified to do that because He was sinless. And ultimately, He's a crucified King. He's not a king that said, yeah, I'm going to cash in my chips for the here and now. He said, I'll take the crown of thorns. I'm not going to bypass your cross, my cross. He said, I'll take that on straight through. Because it's through the cross that I will gain the resurrection. And the greatest hope of the world is that sin would be remedied, the fall would be restored, and death would be conquered. And He did that for us. So when you go through this story, not only is it it's a messianic story, it's a story about spirituality, it's a story about spiritual formation, and ultimately it is a salvation story because if Jesus slips up in the wilderness, we are without hope. We have nothing to be sitting here talking about. So the question of what do I need in the wilderness really isn't the question. The question is who do I need in the wilderness? As your heart is tested, as your body is humbled, who are you following? Who are you trusting? Who are you depending on? Who are you worshiping? Who is sustaining you? Who is the question? And the answer is that this is the Christ. Jesus, the Son of the living God. He's our hope. And the journey of the cross begins in the wilderness. And in our wilderness, it is so small. I mean, you're giving up what? Compared to what He gave up. But it is a beautiful invitation from God to be transformed on this journey and to trust in a new way that Jesus Christ is our life as followers of Him. So this morning, we're inviting you to come to this table. And this is a table where His body is represented in the bread and His blood is represented in the wine. And it is a story that says this Jesus did not bypass the cross that should have been mine. But He took it on Himself so that I could be forgiven and given new life. This is the Jesus you need and this is the Jesus that's here for you. So think about your sin. Think about your weakness. Come to the cross and receive the mercy 
compassion and forgiveness of God this morning through Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to You this morning and we are um, humbled at our own humility, our own weakness, our own fragileness. And God, some of us are intentionally going into the story uh, of the wilderness. We're fasting. We're giving up things uh, so that we can pay more attention to You. Some of us are in the wilderness, God, just because of sickness, because of death and relationships and just trials in our lives. But ultimately, God, as we look at this passage, we recognize that, Jesus, You are uh, truly a God that is worthy of our worship. And, and all these things that we want to cling to are really nothing before You. And so we want to know You more, be shaped by You more, be changed by You more. And I thank You that You didn't give us a quick fix process. But You invited into something personal and intimate. Relational. It's about journey and not just product. And so God, teach us on this journey to, uh, to pay attention to Your Spirit as we anticipate the celebration of Good Friday and Easter. Meet us here at this table. We pray in Your powerful, resurrected name. Amen.